Good morning, everybody. The sheet is on the table. Um, again, a reminder, starting next Sunday, we'll begin our study of the book of Revelation. So spread the word. Everybody loves that book. So spread the word. Book of Revelation starting next Sunday. Today, we complete our study in apologetics. That is to say, defending the Christian faith. As Peter writes in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, to be able to give a defense of your faith to those who ask you. So Lutherans, I hope, learn over the course of time if a friend or a member of your family asks you, why are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? What's the big deal? You'll be able to give them an answer. That's 1 Peter 3, 15. Concluding our series here with defending the faith, um, what I want to do, and I, we certainly won't get through all of this paper today, so we'll get through as much as we can, and you can take that home and read the rest on your own. So we've observed how many scholars or skeptics, if you will, or unbelievers, they always attack the resurrection of Jesus because if you attack the resurrection of Jesus, you attack the fundamental teaching of the Christian faith. Another thing that they will attack is the Bible itself. The Bible itself. And I want to show you how you can defend if somebody says, oh, the Bible is just full of errors and all this kind of stuff, and it's just simply not reliable. We're going to look at external evidence, we're going to look at internal evidence, etc. So look at the sheet. It's entitled Apologetics. That means defending the faith. And we're going to look at the soundness or the reliability, if you will, of Christianity's documents, which would be like, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially the Gospels, and all the rest of Scripture. So again, I repeat for emphasis there that subtitle that Christianity is the only, and I mean this, this is not an exaggeration, it is the only historically verifiable religion in the world. No other religion can be looked at historically and shown to be factually true. Mormonism, you can't. Remember, why not? Because when the Mormon missionaries come knocking on your door and they tell you that Joseph Smith is the true prophet of God and that Mormonism is the restored religion of Christianity on the earth and so all the rest is false, and you ask them, well, how do you know this? And what's their answer? I have a burning in the bosom. Well, that doesn't cut mustard. Feelings don't cut it. But we're so, we hear that. We, so I, I bring this up over and over again because Lutherans, who was it that converted to Mormonism more than any other people in the United States in the 19th century? Who was it? Lutherans from Sweden, Denmark, Germany. Why are there so many blue-eyed, blonde Mormons in Utah? Because the Swedes... Lutherans came to the United States, didn't know Jack. They didn't know their, their Bible. They didn't know their, what they believed. And when the Mormons came and said, well, we have a burning in the bosom. We know it's true. And the Lutherans said, oh, okay. Nonsense. Don't be given to this. So, Christian reading now. Christianity claims that certain events took place in verifiable history. That is, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and he arose on the third day, like Paul preaches in 1 Corinthians 15. The reliability, then, of Christianity's claims, then, are intimately hooked to the trustworthiness of the documents in which such claims are written, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Next paragraph. If the New Testament documents that contain the Christian claims are suspect and subject to corruption over time, so that we really don't know what really took place in the first place, then all bets are off, of course. And that's why people attack Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If they're not reliable, 
than what, it, what they claim about Christ's death and resurrection. All of that's just out the window. Third paragraph. However, if the New Testament documents are sound, and if they have come down to us in reliable ways, then we can move on to the next step of considering the facticity, namely their truth, of the claims made in those documents. Now, I'm not contending at this point that just because a document has been successfully preserved through time, that it necessarily means that what is written is true. What I'm saying is that the first step, I'm talking about apologetics here, strictly speaking, okay? <clears throat> what I am saying is that the first step is to determine if the foundational documents, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have come down to us in a manner where we can say that what we read today in the 21st century is what was exactly written in the first century. Now a caveat here. What we cannot do, and again I'm speaking apologetically, strictly speaking. What we cannot do is presuppose the soundness of the documents like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John by just saying that I believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God because it says it is. I do believe that, by the way. I don't misunderstand what I just said. Pastor Kuhlman believes that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of the Bible is the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. But if, you, if somebody comes up to you and asks, why do you believe this? That answer isn't going to hold. You need to give them some more evidence, if you will. Okay, let's keep going. In apologetics, namely defending the faith, the standard method of historical and legal inquiry Remember, legal, what, what can be proved in a court of law is very important. That's why Paul gives eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? Because judges will listen to eyewitness testimony. Okay? So I do believe that. But in apologetics, the standard method of historical and legal inquiry should be applied to determine whether the documents, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, contain the essential claims of Christianity are reliable or not so that you can at least speak to a, a skeptic or an agnostic and unbeliever and make some progress with them. In other words, if you can show that these documents are reliable and you could actually prove it in a court of law, then you can go somewhere with people if they're reasonable. Now, I should say something else. Have you heard about postmodernism? You ever heard the term postmodernism? Well, if you haven't, you can Google it. But we live in a postmodern world, which means we now live in a world that has reacted against the Enlightenment that started in the 1600s and 1700s. The Enlightenment taught reason. Reason, science, individuality, capitalism, etc. We now live in a, in a culture which is postmodern, which means it's irrational. There is, they, they will not be reasonable. Okay. So what I'm trying to say is if your skeptic or your agnostic or unbelieving friend that asks you questions is a postmodernist, they will be irrational and you can't make much progress with them. Just be aware of that. That's a side note. Now, how about neutral or secular sources? Do we go there first? Well, let's read what I've got. Someone might ask, shouldn't we attempt to establish the truth or untruth of Christianity on the basis of neutral or secular writings at the time? Like, for example, Josephus, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, or Tacitus. Those were historians around the time of Christianity's birth. After all, because all of these, these historians that I just mentioned, they all refer to Jesus 
And they all speak about the early church. So wouldn't such secular sources be more objective and less apt to embellish their writings with personal subjective biases? Now, I, I argue that this is not the place to start. You don't start with Josephus, with people who ask and say, see, Christianity is true. See what Josephus said? Or Pliny the Younger, see what he says? Now we know Christianity is true. I think that's the wrong place to start. Let me, let me make these points. Even though references to Jesus by these historians make it virtually impossible to deny the historical existence of Jesus, they are, and this is important, think court of law. These are secondary sources. They are not primary sources. You want to go to primary sources to prove that Christianity is true. See that this difference here? Police officer knows these things. Investigating police officers know these things. Talk to Kara. She'll tell you. She's shaking her head going, yep, that's right, that's right. Okay. I wish we could Yeah, I wish you could, but you can't. Not in a court of law. And you can't use third, fourth, fifth hand testimony. The judge will throw it out. You need eyewitness testimony. So in other words, they do not get their information. That would be uh, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, Josephus. They do not get their information from people that had what? Personal contact with Jesus or his apostles. So judges in state and federal courts would say that these historians, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Josephus, etc., they suffer from what the law calls a lack of personal knowledge about what they are testifying to, and they would be subject to, what would the judge say? Hearsay. So this is why I say you don't use these men to say Christianity is true. Are you following what I'm doing here? Any questions so far? Yes, Mike? Well, how come we don't have uh, apologetics and for, uh, for what happened before of the uh, birth of Christ? Nobody ever questions the Israelites and what they want to Right. They don't have to stand up for what happened for them. And they have, they have history just like we have. Well, we do do this for the Old Testament because there are scholars who would deny everything in the Old Testament, too. And we do the same thing that we're doing here with the Old Testament. Same exact thing. So, for example, when, when, when Moses writes about things, he writes about things that he saw firsthand or people who first who saw the things happen. The prophets, the same way. Isaiah, Jeremiah. We can say these people actually were eyewitnesses to what they wrote about and saw. Make sense? But do people deny that? Oh, of course they do. We're dealing with irrational postmodern people today. Again, I'm going to repeat this. If you've ever wondered why, maybe you've, maybe you've encountered this personally, or maybe you've seen it on TV with all the talking heads on TV, you've got a reasonable person trying to make a case, whether it's political, scientific, religious, they're trying to make a reasonable case, and the opponent is completely unreasonable and simply makes ad hominem arguments, like, you're an idiot. That's an ad, ho ad hominem means against the man. It's a personal attack. They're not reasonable. They don't listen to the argument and say, well, you might have a point there. No, it's they go immediately ad hominem and attack. That's how it works. Watch TV. That's how it always works. Name the topic. Even sports, ESPN, it's the same thing. You ESPN junkies, they're postmoderns. In any event, sorry. Let me continue this. So... Again, the reason we don't start here then is that Josephus, Pliny, Suetonius, or Tacitus 
never personally saw or heard Jesus, nor did they see events reportedly done in his ministry. And let me add that these non-biblical historians are not contemporary necessarily with our Lord's life and resurrection and the events described in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you're picking up what I'm throwing down here, the only primary source materials are what? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They claim to have first-hand contact with Jesus and the events. Or they were close associates of the eyewitnesses and investigated the hard data for themselves. Mark, he was not, a, he was not an apostle, nor was Luke. So why are these reliable, Mark and Luke? Because Mark learned what he wrote in his gospel from whom? Peter, who was a disciple, an apostle, an eyewitness. And Luke, if you read his first verses of his gospel, he says, and I'll paraphrase, I went and talked to the eyewitnesses. I have investigated all of this stuff. Now, a doctor would do that. Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. He was a scientist who would, who would look and search out facts. He's not a postmodern scientist like today where facts don't matter and all there is is an agenda to push, right? So Luke would look at objective facts and, he, and I would contend that Luke probably went to one of the most, the most primary eyewitnesses of our Lord's life, ministry, death and resurrection. And who do you think that would be besides the apostles themselves? Who would it be? His mother Mary. Because Luke has things that the other Gospels don't include about our Lord's conception, right? The Annunciation, when the archangel came and preached to Mary, he's the only one that has that. Who would he have learned that from? Mary, right? The visit of Mary to Elizabeth, the visitation, who would have, who would have told Luke about that? Mary, right? You picking up what I'm throwing down here? We're talking about these guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, go to the primary sources. So these documents, what I'm trying to say, if, so I want to make this point. These are primary documents that deal with eyewitness testimony that in a court would stand up. A judge would say, yep, yep. And by the way, so for example, from the 1500s on, you have, even to this day, you have lawyers who know their discipline of law and deal with what? I'm talking about honest people, <coughs> evidence. Evidence. I'm talking about people who don't have agendas to push. They will actually listen to the evidence. Lawyers from the 1500s on, even to this day, I'll even mention Craig Parton. If, you're, if you don't know that name, look it up. Google Craig Parton, lawyer, Missouri Senate lawyer. Here's my point. Unbelieving lawyers who investigated the claims of Christianity became Christians because they're doing what I'm doing here. They would look at the primary evidence and say, this would stand up in every court of law in the world, and this has got to be true then. And they became, da-da-da, Christians. Now, I said this for another reason, too, because I want to repeat what I've said over the last few weeks. Because as I've learned over the years, I can't say things once. I have to repeat, repeat, repeat. So quit rolling your eyes, everybody. <laughs> Christianity is rational. Faith and reason many times are not opposed. Now, there are times when faith and reason can be opposed to each other, but generally speaking, faith and reason can go together. Like Paul said in Acts 26, I speak to you rational truths. Rational truths. This is what apologetics does. 
because people think that you're irrational. You're an idiot because you believe in this Christianity stuff. That's irrational. And you can say, no, it's not. It's completely rational. And that's what we're doing today by looking at the primary documents. Let's keep going. Yes, please. It depends on the agenda that's being pushed, that's all. Because they're, that's, you know, there's nothing right about evolution, and that's their faith. Exactly, because it's a cult. Yeah, I mean, so it's, why don't they ever do that to them? Well, again, we're, we're to the point. My point is, is that Christianity is the only religion that can be verified historically with evidence, factual evidence. What you just mentioned, that's all hearsay. Right, that's what I'm saying. So, yeah, follow the scientific method. What did you all learn in fifth grade when you started studying science? What is the scientific method to determine, quote, truth? You have to, you make a hypothesis, right? Now, correct me if I get the steps out of order because I'm doing this off the top of my head. But you have an hypothesis. You make a hypothesis about something. Then you test your hypothesis. And it has to be observable. And then you have to repeat it. And if, and if you want to, you can continue to repeat it to find out if your hypothesis is false or true, right? Okay, so all the scientists who say that it's what, what's reported in Genesis is false and then push another agenda, fill in the blank, ask them, were you there to observe it? And have you tested this? What's the answer? Of course not, it's a cult. They're pushing an ideology and the ideology is what? Evolution. What is the ideology of Charles Darwin? Destroy Christianity, destroy Christianity, destroy Christianity. That was the ideology, and it hasn't changed one bit. Nothing new under the sun. Started in Genesis 3. Did God really say? Is that, is that helpful? Yeah, I, I just like say, I just don't hear anybody saying something about evolution being, well, quite frankly, you know, Well, I think, well, that it is irrational. It is because they will use certain circumstantial evidence to push, but if you... I think, uh, let's see, Sarah, uh, I, I shared a website with you. I forget the name of it. Do you remember off the top of your head? If you remember, remind me, because I'm not remembering either. But it's a great uh, website and podcast that will actually show uh, that what the Christian claims in the Bible can be historically proven, archaeologically, and all throughout. I'm not saying this very well. But again, I'm trying. Anything else? But that's what I'm saying, is that you're right. Right, right. I mean, there is no other, they're just like they just believe that's what happened. Yeah. I wasn't prepared to answer that very well, so have mercy on me. Sarah's going to look this up and we'll, we'll shoot it out. So, the reliability of ancient documents. How, in other words, how do scholars establish the reliability of ancient documents? Okay, we're going to find out how they do that, and we'll see if they apply the same thing to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, do you remember, y'all do, don't you? Y'all remember Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, which was the rage about 20 years ago? Sure, you all remember that. And you watch it on TNT 24-7 and TBS when it's on, right? Because you all love Tom Hanks. Oh, he's the best. Tom Hanks, run from Tom Hanks. In any event, that's a side note. Well, the book argued that the Gospels were, notice, collected, amended, edited, and supplemented and changed for generations by the so-called Catholic Church or perhaps by Emperor Constantine in the fourth century. Now, if you have a conversation with someone who holds Dan Brown's position, where do you begin to counter it? Do you just assert that the Gospels are true and just leave it at that? Not if you want to do proper apologetics. You would want to use the generally, listen carefully now, the generally accepted 
rules or methods of investigation to the gospels that scholars would apply to what? To any ancient or classical piece of literature in order to determine if it has come down to us in a reliable way. So it is critical then to determine an answer to the question of how one establishes whether a document of classical Greek or Roman antiquity has come down to us today in a generally reliable form. In other words, how do we know that we have what was actually composed by the, by the supposed author? Well, you don't have to do hard work on this, okay? Because I've already done it for you and it's in this paper, so hang on tight. Even scholars in the classics, so for example, let's Jill, let's say Jill, she, she's, when she becomes like a senior, she wants to go to Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, and she wants, to be, she wants to study classical literature. That's the place to go, by the way, and which means she's gonna have to learn Latin and Greek and maybe some other languages to investigate ancient documents. Like for example, well, we'll get to it here. Let me get to it here. Um, we will employ certain tests that do not have any anti-religious bias one way or the other. They are tests that apply to the writings of Plato, Homer, Catullus, and Suetonius, just as much as they do to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So these are tests that you can do to the ancient documents written by Plato or somebody else or Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are three tests. One is a, a bibliogra bibliographical test, an internal evidence test, and external evidence. Now again, we're not going to get through all of these today, but we'll begin to whet your appetite. Again, the three tests, if Jill would go and study the writings of Plato at Wash U in St. Louis, these tests would be used on these documents to determine whether or not what Plato wrote was actually Plato's writing and reliable. So if you do that with Plato's writing, you do the same thing with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and guess what you're going to discover? They are reliable documents. Let's keep going. So the bibliographical test seeks to determine how reliably the actual physical document has come down to us. The internal evidence test seeks to discover what the text themselves reveal about their reliability. In other words, do they claim eyewitness status? Well, Matthew does. John does. And if the answer is yes, do the authors give evidence of the means, the motive, and opportunity to present eyewitness evidence? Well, the Gospels do exactly that. The more removed, listen carefully now here, the more removed the author is from the actual people and events being written about, the more questionable the internal evidence will be and the more historically unreliable the resulting document. Let me illustrate. Let's just pretend that Matthew wrote his Gospel 700 years after the events he recorded. In a court of law, the judge would say, that's simply not reliable. But if Matthew wrote his gospel, which we think was very early after our Lord's death. Jesus died in what year? 33 AD. Matthew wrote shortly thereafter, decade or two after, very early. He's very close to the events that he reports on. And in a court of law, a judge would say, that's reliable. You picking up what I'm throwing down here? Okay, let's keep going. So again, if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, on page two now, the only primary source materials are by the, well, pardon me, I gotta go to the bottom of the page. Phew, good grief. Let's go to page three. 
external evidence, pardon me. I'm just so worked up about this, I can't even keep track of where I'm at. The external evidence focuses on reliable materials and evidence outside of the texts that either support or contradict the claims of the document itself. So bibliographical, internal, external. So we'll apply these tests to the four Gospels just like Jill would do to the writings of Plato at Wash U or some other ancient writer to simply determine whether these four authors are reliable and primary source documents. That's all. Nothing more. If they turn out to be unreliable and late sources compiled by editors who wanted to push their own agenda, like systemic white male racism or misogyny, misogyny means hating women. And seriously, that's, that's the contention of scholars today. So if Jill would go to Wash U, I guarantee, this is not an exaggeration, if Jill would ask a question about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to the professor or professors, this is what they would say the Gospels are. The Gospels were not written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These Gospels were written decades, if not hundreds of years after the fact, and they were written by white men who wanted to push white supremacy. No joke, that's what they'll say. And then they'll say, see, you can't trust these documents. Or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were written by people a long time after the fact happened that they report, let's say a thousand years after the fact, to push that we all hate women. We want to keep women in their place, and men should be supreme. That's what they'll say at WashU. Well, is that in fact the case? Let's learn. Let's keep going. These writings will then have been disqualified from serious consideration since their religious claims will have been found to be contained in a totally spurious document or in a document in which false information is so intertwined with the reliable material that it is impossible to separate what is false from what is true. Now that's what they're trying to do, but we're going to show you can't do that because they are reliable. Let's keep going. The bibliographical test, let's apply it to the four Gospels. When it comes to the Greek and Latin works from the classical era, like Jill would study at St. Louis U, like Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, if you've never read that, you should, by the way, it's fabulous stuff. We have very few, are you listening? We have very few, if any, original works in the Greek and Latin. That's a fact. This is not Kuhlman making a personal opinion. This is a fact. So Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, the fact is we have very few original works in the Greek and the Latin. Maybe uh, we don't even have an original manuscript of Shakespeare's 37 existent plays. Did you know that? Did you know that? And yet, when you take English and you study Shakespeare in, in, in high school or college, I guarantee you, the high school teacher or the college professor, when you study Shakespeare, the writings of Shakespeare are, without any doubt, said what? Shakespeare wrote it, and they're reliable. But we don't have one original document. You see what I'm doing here? Let's keep going. So it's, ca it's a Captain Obvious statement, but I have to say it. Fire, wars, mishandling, damage due to age, and storage leave us with gaps between when the original work was written and the date of the first copy. Consequently, it is important to keep in mind various points when one deals with ancient documents like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whose authorship predates the invention of movable type. First, the greater of copies that are in existence of any manuscript, the more confidence one has that he can accurately replicate the content of the original document. I'm going to read that again because this is huge. 
the greater number of copies that are in existence of any manuscript, whether it's Plato's writings or whether it's Matthew, Mark, Mark Luke, or John, then you have the, a greater uh, reliability of the documents. That's my point. For example, if one has only three copies of a document from which to construct the original, the confidence one has that the original can be reproduced is certainly much less than if one has 30 copies from which to conduct a comparison. Similarly, if one has 300 copies of a document spanning hundreds of years and the copies show substantial agreement over a long period of time, one can have significant confidence that the content of the original document has likely not been corrupted. And that's exactly what we have with what? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's keep going. In addition to the sheer number of quantity, or yeah, the sheer number or quantity of documents, the time gap, this is important, the time gap between the events recorded within the document and the earliest copies becomes critical. The greater the time gap, the less confidence one has that the events recorded actually took place as recorded. So it's going to be instructive, therefore, to first inquire how works of classical Greek and Latin antiquity compare with what? The four evangelists. Now, in general, the Greek and Latin classical works that Jill will study at Wash U involve an exceedingly minute number of copies. No autographs exist in almost every case, many of which first show up, are you listening? Show up thousand years or more after the events they record. And yet the scholars at Wash U would say, these are reliable, reliable documents. We know they're true. But they won't apply the same to the Gospels. Let's keep going. For example, the Latin poet Catullus wrote his poetry from approximately 84 to 54 BC, before Jesus. The earliest copies of his works date from, check this out, the late 14th century AD and are known to us from only how many manuscripts? And if you study Catalyst at Wash U, all your professors will say, these documents that we have are reliable, even though there's this huge time gap between when he wrote and the copies that we have. How many centuries? Do the math, Mrs. Kuhlman. How many centuries? Sorry to put you on the spot. We're talking tons of centuries here, right? 1,400 centuries. If my math is correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but yet the scholars will say, oh, we have no doubt these are reliable documents. Only three and 1,400 years from the time they were written to the copies that we have. Now, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we don't have 1,400 years between when they were written and the copies that we have. And yet, the scholars will say, oh, these documents are unreliable. Why? Because they have an agenda. And what's the agenda? Destroy Christianity. Destroy Christianity. Destroy Christianity. So they're not scientific. They don't follow the, quote, science, because they have an agenda push. Destroy Christianity. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? And when you guys go to college, and you study this kind of stuff, that's what you will encounter. This is why you need to be prepared to tell the professor, you're an idiot. <laughs> that's what Kuhlman would say. You'd be more polite. Show them the evidence. Kuhlman would just say, you're an idiot. 
Yes. Oh, I got more on the Quran. It's in this. It's in this paper. Oh, hang on tight. I've got you. <laughs> well, if we get there, we'll cover it. If not, you can take this home and read it. I've, I've got the Quran in here. Okay? Because the Muslim scholars will do the same thing. Destroy Christianity. Destroy Christianity. And they will do the same thing. <coughs> All right, we're at the bottom of page three, aren't we? So here are some other examples. Caesar's Gallic Wars... When were those written? From 58 to 50 BC. Survived today on the basis of approximately how many manuscripts? 10. The oldest is dated about 900 years after the events it records. See the time gap? Almost a thousand years between the reporting and the manuscripts. Thucydides, approximately 460 to 400 BC. His history of the Peloponnesian War is known to us through eight manuscripts. And the earliest is dated at about what? 900 AD. See the time gap? And all the scholars of Wash will say, these are reliable documents. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, well then apply the same thing to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and they won't do it, you see. I'm pushing this so that you're prepared. You deal, with, you deal with scholars who will not apply the same thing that they do with ancient documents from the Roman and Greek world, and they won't apply it to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they have an agenda to push. They want to destroy your Christian faith. And if you're not prepared, they'll do it. You'll be like those Swedes who come to the United States, and the more missionaries come up, and they, all these blonde, blue-eyed Swedes, yeah, I guess that's true, because they don't know Jack. You can tell I'm very passionate about this. And this is a problem. This is a crisis in the church where Lutherans don't know Jack. It's time for us to grow up and be mature and learn. Oh, sorry. I, well, I'm not going to apologize. I think this needs to be said. I'm going to say it again. It's time for us in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, and it's time for us at Trinity Lutheran Church to grow up and be mature and learn. Learn. Okay, enough on that. Let's keep going. Because this is going to blow your mind. Check this out. So, F.F. Bruce, if you don't know this guy, learn, learn to know F.F. Bruce if you're interested in all these topics I'm giving you today. F.F. Bruce, the renowned Rylands Professor of Biblical Criticism and Exegesis, he's dead now, but he taught at the University of Manchester. He concluded, quote, that no classical scholar would listen to an argument that the authenticity of Herodotus or Thucydides is in doubt because the earliest manuscripts of their works which are of any use to us are over 1,300 years later than the... See the time gap? And he's saying no scholar would doubt these documents. At the University of California, Santa Barbara, one has to read extensively in Catalyst to obtain a master's or PhD in classics, and the same would probably be included at St. Louis U, Jill, okay? <coughs> there appears to be little concern then when you study these things to get your master's or PhD. No concern that there is not one original manuscript of any of his works and the earliest copies of Catalyst date about 14 years after the poet lived. No problem, no problem, no big deal, it's just a given. Below you see an overview of some of the best attested works of antiquity, that means the ancient world, including when the original work was done, when the earliest copy comes to us, and the interval of time between the original and earliest copy. I mentioned the Gallic Wars, mentioned Catalyst. Look at Plato. 
When did he write? Look at the date there. Earliest copy? 900 AD. What's the time span? 1300 years. How many copies do we have of Plato's Tetralogies? Only seven. So just scan it. Now look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at the bottom. <coughs> Written from 50 to 90 AD. Earliest copies that we have? 200 AD. What's the time gap? How many copies? It blows the ancient documents out of the water. My point is, the time gap is shorter. We have hundreds of more copies. So what should be applied? The same standard should be applied to antiqui antiquity documents of Plato, etc. But they won't do it. So you, you ladies and gentlemen who go to college and you encounter this, you can give them the hard data. Take, keep this. Never forget this. Give them the hard data and say, Professor, how do you explain this then? And they'll go, well, we all know that Christianity is not true. We, know, we all know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't true. Yeah, but here's the evidence. You believe that Plato's writing was an original and we can rely on it? Yeah, but we all know that, we all know that Matthew was written by anti-Semite white men. And I'm not exaggerating. There was a hand, I think. Yes. So in other words, we, for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have hundreds and thousands of documents that are copies of the original. Remember my earlier point? If you've got, if you, if you've got tons of copies, you know that, and they're, and they're all substantially agreed with the main thing, that it's reliable. In other words, a judge would say, look at all this evidence here. So when you mean copies, So my point is, so we do not have the original document of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We do not have the originals. Just like we don't have the original Plato stuff and Homer, Homer, Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Okay? But we have copies of the originals. That is to say, there were, there were people who wrote down what Matthew wrote down in his original, and then they passed it on, and then they made copies. And it isn't just in one language like Greek. It's in Aramaic. It's in Coptic. It's in Syrian. We have all kinds of different language copies of the Gospels that went all throughout the world that when you compare all the copies, they're all reliable to each other. Does that answer your question? Yes, I'm sorry. It isn't a Xerox copy. My point is, is that they copied the original. The original we don't have anymore, but we have hundreds of thousands of copies, which means in a court of law, this would stand up. Time gap, short, tons of copies. Court of law, that's what I'm doing here. Because it's reasonable, it's evidential, it's legal. Now, we, we, this is why you can do all these things and still say that the Bible is the word of God and I believe it. Okay? You can, but you have, you have to be reasonable too when you present the evidence if you're dealing with reasonable people. Now, if you're, if you're dealing with irrational postmodernists, then you have, to, you have to understand where they're coming from, and then you have to use a different kind of thing with them, which is a whole other Bible study. I'm kind of doing it to a certain extent. All right, bottom of page four then. What do we conclude from what I've just done with you here? It's easy peasy. Much of what we know from the classical world is built upon the very thinnest evidence or documentary trails. 
Two renowned classical scholars put it this way, quote, page five. When the great period of the revival was over under the general reign of Charlemagne and its successors in the ninth to the 11th centuries, some of the great works of Latin literature were still but a single manuscript on a single shelf. The slightest accident could still have robbed us of some of our most precious texts of Catullus, Propertius, Petronius, or Tacitus. As an aside, Mike, let's talk about the Quran's manuscript authority. Several differing versions of the Quran were circulating after the death of Muhammad in AD 632. A later caliph, Uthman, the third caliph after the death of Muhammad, decided to collect all 24 disparate versions, that means various versions, of the Quran except for one, and then proceeded to burn all the other copies. On the basis of this evidential trail, Muslim apologists claim that they now have an uncorrupted and perfect single text from which all translations have come. And by the way, when you, when you, I, is there a Muslim center at Norfolk? I don't think there is. But if you go to the University of Nebraska, if you go to Wash U, go to UNO, you go to any major university in this country, there is a Muslim center. And you will hear that argument about the Quran. Be prepared. They'll come after you. They'll meet you on the street and they'll give you this stuff. The only problem with this, I'm reading again, is that there is absolutely no evidence that the one version Uthman kept was the most accurate. Consequently, when the followers of Islam claim that they have no such problem with manuscript authorities because they have one pure text, the situation is actually quite the contrary. Their pure and unadulterated text, allegedly dictated by Allah, turns out to be totally illusory and easily capable of being falsified because of its bizarre and historically discredited statements. And this is a fact about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, what it claims about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus cannot be factually verified. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John can. Now back to our discussion about the classics of the ancient world. Even though the time gaps are substantial between the date of the original composition and the earliest copy, the general authenticity and reliability of the great works of the classical world are never doubted, as I've said over and over again. No one doubts them. We don't even, even Christians don't doubt that. Okay? Now, let's turn our attention now to the writers of the four counts of the life of Jesus that are in the New Testament. The difference couldn't be greater when you compare them with works of ancient world. Even liberal and atheist biblical scholars agree that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are indeed the best primary source documents of the life of Jesus. For example, John Robinson. Boy, if you don't know that name, blessed are you. But John Robinson, an Anglican, a very liberal New Testament scholar, he's dead now, argues that all four of these works were written before A.D. 70. And when he wrote that, that was revolutionary. I mean, he was almost kicked out of the scholarly world by making that contention. William Albright, now when he said they were written even before 70 A.D., do you realize the point he was making? The time gap, Jesus died in 33 A.D. The documents that we have that report these events are as early as 70 A.D. See how small the time gap is? 
We're not talking thousands of years of a time gap. Does this make sense? Let's keep going. Albright, the dean of American archaeologists from the last century, concluded that we, quote, can already say emphatically that there is no longer any solid basis for dating any book of the New Testament after about 80 AD, two full generations before the date between 130 and 150 given by the more radical New Testament critics of today. And even if you went with that later date, the time gap compared to the works of ancient antiquity is still quite small. Now, side note, you, 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 I hope you understand that the later date that I just gave you of the contention of the Gospels was done to try and disprove that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't write them. But white guys who hate women and who are supremacists, they wrote them. That was their point, without any evidence. <laughs> Even Ehrman. Oh, remember Professor Ehrman. Oh, God love him. God bless him. He's still alive. The outspoken liberal critic and chairman of religious studies at the University of North Carolina where Mac Brown coaches, the only coach that's won 100 games with two programs. Huh, remember that? That's where he teaches. So he's gotta be true, right? Mm -hmm. He's where Mac Brown coaches, and he's got 100 wins at Texas, and now at UNC. He said even this, he said, the view of all serious historians of antiquity, of every kind, from committed evangelical Christians to hardcore atheists, is that the oldest and best sources we have for knowing about the life of Jesus are what? The four Gospels. They have to admit this. He's at least honest that way. Yeah. Page six. Yes, please. So, so what you're saying is that they are so uh, concerned about the Christianity that they'll go to any length to try to discredit it. So that obviously there must be some, they're just, just be afraid. Or they're just like, well, we can't do anything about these Christians. So we'll try to do whatever we can to destroy him. That is correct. It's just like you're trying to say uh, uh, Trump. They'll do anything to destroy him. Yeah, if you want to use that analogy, I think that's fair. Um, without making a political statement, no, I think that's saying, fair. I'm just like, saying it's fair. some yeah. people will just go to any place they can. That's right. And so religiously speaking, on your first point, with the airmen, etc., this is on purpose to destroy Christianity. These people are the mouthpieces of Satan. And remember, when Paul had to deal with the false preachers at Corinth, how did Paul describe the false teachers? They parade around, I quote, they parade around as angels of light. This ain't the exorcist kind of stuff. If you've seen the exorcist, you know, and how, how Satan is portrayed, that, ain't, that isn't how he works necessarily. Satan works this way. Men dressed like me, or men who wear a tweed coat and a tartan tie, and they've got the two-tone shoes like me. And they, they look so nice and they sound so smart. And yet they are mouthpiece. And they're nice people. They're so nice. They're not like Gulman. Seriously, they're not like me at all. They're so nice and so winsome. And that's Satan at work. See, that's how Satan works. Paul says they parade around as angels of light. Because if they showed up like the exorcist, you ain't going to listen to that. You can spot that easily. You know, puke coming out of the mouth and head spinning. You can, you can just spot that. That's how the movie goes, you know, if you haven't seen it. That's easy to spot. But the tartan tie and the tweed coat and the two-tone shoes and the winsome voice and the soft hands who don't have a callus on them, you know, because they've never done any work in their life. 
Oh, it's got to be true. Uh, check my hands, I've got calluses. But that's from golfing. <laughs> well, if I may, let me just finish that, that paragraph and then we'll call it quits on page six. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke record events that happened primarily from A.D. 30 to A.D. 33. The earliest complete copy of all the four Gospels dates from around 325 A.D., a mere 300 years later. However, even this time gap can be substantially bridged by numerous partial copies, including portions that date from as early as the very beginning of the second century. We have a nearly complete copy of the Gospel and the letters by John and Luke that date from the late second century. More impressively, perhaps, the number of Greek copies alone of the New Testament, including the Gospels, is, do you see that number? Compare that to Plato's writings, Suetonius's, and all the, they say, well, they're reliable. Well, then why not with the Gospels? 5,000. If the Latin and Syriac and Coptic copies of the Gospel writers are included, the number swells to over 15,000 manuscripts that we have. Well, the brief time span between the original writings and the first copy, as well as the overwhelming number of copies of these writings, makes the, and this is important when you're doing apologetics, the evidentiary trail, evidence, 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 the evidentiary trail for all the other works of the classic or Latin world appear almost non-existent. However, the general reliability and integrity of the great works of antiquity are presumed and essentially beyond dispute. So if you do that with the ancient documents of the Greek and Roman world, apply the same standards to the New Testament. If you're, if you're reasonable and scientific, you would then conclude what? My goodness, the evidence that we have for these four Gospels is even greater than we have for Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius. But they don't do it. So you need to be prepared to give the hard data and don't pull a Kuhlman and say, Professor, you're just a fool. Kuhlman would say, you need to be ousted. You shouldn't even be a professor. Number one, you're dishonest, you won't follow the evidence, and you're pushing an agenda. That's how it shouldn't be done that way. Do you have any final questions about what, you can read the rest. I, I, it's delicious, I think. Any final questions or concerns? All right, I'll beat you at the woodshed and you can uh, take care of me out there.